Welcome back to Create Space, a podcast that finds joy in the art of storytelling. Today, I'm excited to tell you about an amazing opportunity that I had just a couple of weeks ago, I guess three weeks ago now. Thanks to funding that was provided by my department, the Elliott School of Communication, I was able to travel to Las Vegas for a joint conference. It was the Broadcast Educators Association Conference, and then also the National Association of Broadcasters Convention, which was incredible. Altogether, it was five solid days of technology, creativity, pedagogy, and just getting to meet a ton of really amazing people in the industry. So I thought for the episode today that I would do a short recap for you. I would just tell you some of the things that I saw, some of the things that I got to experience, and everything that I learned along the way. First, let me give you a lay of the land. So we flew in on a Friday, and the conference didn't begin until Saturday. Now, this was also my very first time ever in Las Vegas. So the first night, I just kind of took it easy, walked to the strip, walked around the hotel, and took everything in and sort of figured out where things were. As you would guess, the sights and the sounds and just the sheer amount of people was really incredible. Um, I also haven't really traveled much since COVID, so it took a little while for me to get used to everything, to be honest with you. And that evening, by the way, I also had a really delicious dinner. It was scallops and angel hair pasta in a lemon garlic cream sauce. It was from the Seafood Shack at Treasure Island Hotel, and it was so good. Okay, so that was the first night, right? Then the second day was the first day of the Broadcast Educators Association Conference. And there were about, I think, 900 or so people that were signed up for that conference. So it was pretty small compared to what the next couple of days felt like when NAB started, when the National Association for Broadcasters uh, Convention began. That one brought in about 100,000 people from all over the world. But honestly, it was nice having the first day be just BEA because it allowed me to get used to the convention center, meet people you know that were educators and were there for BEA before we got overwhelmed by all of the NAB stuff the next couple of days. So I went to two different panels that were about podcasting, which were really interesting. And there were actually several more sessions that were related to podcasting that were being offered that just didn't end up fitting into my schedule for one reason or another. It was definitely a very hot topic this year at the conference. I can tell that podcasting is not going anywhere. People are very excited to talk about it. So the first podcasting session that I went to was all about ethics. And this was interesting because something that we all know and something that many people say is anyone can start a podcast right? Like literally anyone, you know, no one has approved create space. No one has told me, yes, you can make this podcast. I didn't have to submit an application or anything like that. I just recorded some stuff and then I published it. Do I think I have valuable, trustworthy and ethical content? Yes, I do. But technically (laughs) there are exactly zero checks and balances in the podcast world. So this conversation about ethics doesn't apply a ton to create space since I'm not really tackling super controversial issues or topics, but where it has been a big issue and has been discussed a lot is in the true crime genre of podcasts. So the question that that session posed was, is a true crime podcast host a de facto journalist? 
And thus, are they also expected to uphold a journalistic standard of ethics? Which I thought was a really good question. And there were a variety of answers even from within the panel. So they tackled things like properly sourcing your information, um, how much commentary the host can and should include, and then what types of permission, if any, should be required from the victims and or the victims' families. Which really, that led to the overarching question of, is it okay to sensationalize someone else's tragedy for entertainment value? That's a big question, right? And it's the question that gets to the heart of all true crime entertainment that we see, and there's a lot of it. And I don't know exactly where that line is, to be honest with you. It's a, it's a convicting thought because I love true crime. So yeah, it was really interesting. They also brought up whether or not it was a conflict of interest for a podcast host to interview people they know. So like friends or family or colleagues, things like that. Now, I was really intrigued by that because it's something that I had not really considered. I mean, let's just look at the past episodes I've done for Create Space. I've interviewed my brother. I've interviewed current and former students of mine, um, friends from college. I would say maybe a quarter of the people that I've interviewed have been people I didn't know prior to the podcast. So I rely heavily on my own network when I'm creating content. And the general consensus in the room was that that's okay and that a lot of podcast hosts do that. So while it is something that journalists have to consider heavily, we kind of all agreed that depending on the podcast that you're hosting, it's a little bit different of a medium than strict journalism. So the general consensus there was that as long as you're transparent about who your sources are and what your relationship is with them, then you're probably safe. And like I said, all of these questions come back to that overarching question of are podcasters journalists? So for me, inherently, I would say no. I think it depends very heavily on the type of podcast that you're doing. Although, while I wouldn't consider us to all be journalists, I do think that there's an inherent responsibility when you get behind the mic, right? And we do have to honor and respect that responsibility and take it very seriously. Because regardless of how many people we think are listening or whether we think we're just making a podcast as a joke or whatever, as soon as you put yourself behind the mic and publish it, no matter how easy it is, you need to take that responsibility seriously. So that was a really cool session. The second podcasting session I went to had an incredible panel. I would argue this was probably my favorite session I went to. It was a panel of podcast producers and voice actors. So the panel included Kai Swanson from Elon University, Max Cotter from Toronto Metropolitan University, David Nelson from the University of Central Oklahoma, and Francisco Suarez from the State University of New York in Oswego. Let me tell you, I left this session so inspired. These were four of the most creative and innovative thinkers that I have ever experienced. They talked about understanding the value of your airtime and how podcasting has created a platform that gives the power of speech to those who have a story to tell. So as you would guess, the second the word story was mentioned, I was immediately drawn in because that's the entire theme of my podcast. That's what it's all about, bringing voices to the table that might not otherwise be heard, sharing stories to create community and build empathy. And all of that is built into the podcasting narrative and the podcasting medium. 
I particularly loved listening to Max Cotter. So again, he was from Toronto Metropolitan, and he's done a lot of work in the sci-fi realm. And he discussed what's called world building and the endless possibilities therein of using imagination and play when it comes to your podcasts. So for example, he was talking about where they had to consider what the end of the world would sound like because they had a dystopian uh, eco-political satire podcast called No One Receiving. And they had to create sounds that nobody had ever heard before. The end of the world has not happened. (laughs) And so what they ended up doing was they layered the sounds of a toaster and a creme brulee torch and a synthesizer to create a sound that they felt like worked within this fantasy world that they had created. Now let's move on a little bit from podcasting. Let's get to something else because I certainly experienced a lot of other things besides podcasting stuff. I also attended a session on live sports production and I went to this one because my colleague Kevin Hager, who also was my travel buddy for this conference, was presenting. So it was him and a few other sports broadcasters. And it was cool to get to see him in his element and discussing all of the many applied learning initiatives that we have available at WSU. It was really validating, I think, to see how others in our field reacted to him talking about what we've done and seeing the hands-on components that Kevin has incorporated into his curriculum. People reacted really well and It was validating because it reminded me that we really do applied learning very well in our department. For a little bit of context, you have some idea of kind of what I'm talking about. We have a career pipeline that students can use to go directly into a production job working on ESPN broadcasts for sports. It's it's pretty incredible. And Kevin has built this completely from the ground up. So Kevin teaches a class called Live Sports Production, and he partners with a company, a local company called Black Fox Crew, which is led by Todd Schwartz. And Black Fox Crew is the production company that contracts with ESPN to broadcast all of our Shocker Athletics events. Students get to shadow and learn about all the positions like directing, camera operations, graphics, replay, all of that in a safe and relatively low stakes academic environment. But then after that semester is over, many of them often transition to working with Black Fox Crew in a paid position. Now, that's, of course, assuming that they performed well and got a good grade in the class. So that was really cool getting to hear him explain that career pipeline and seeing how people reacted to that. I also went to a session that focused on technology within the pedagogical space, specifically software. It addressed the question that I ask myself a lot, and I know a lot of instructors in tech-heavy spaces do as well, which is the question of, should I teach the software itself in the class? Should I demo the software in class? Or conversely, should I teach the concepts and strategies in more of a platform agnostic way and then let the students learn the tech and software part on their own? The reason for that would be that the technologies change every couple of years anyways. We know this. This is a big question, and Forgive me if this is something that you don't care about, (laughs) but for educators in the technology space, this is a really big, important question. And when I saw this session offered, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go to this. And Kevin actually came with me to this one as well, because it's something that he and I have often struggled with as to whether to teach it in class or not. Now, I have always taught software and tech in class, and I think I probably always will, at least in some capacity, 
The reason for that is if you don't have a foundation from which to apply the concepts and strategies, then you won't be able to learn those concepts and strategies effectively. So if a student takes a video editing class from me and I explain things like basic sequencing or how to edit to music or what a three point edit is or basic color correction, and then I say, go figure that out in the software that they're using, they probably can't do that unless they already have a foundation in video editing, which some do. And if they already have a foundation in that, then in those cases, leaving a student to apply the skill in the software themselves can be fairly effective. However, for a student who doesn't even understand a nonlinear editing interface, that's going to be really difficult for them to acclimate themselves to a new software and also apply the new skills all on their own. So for most students, the majority of them, that's going to be really difficult. And that's why I tend to teach it in class to make sure that they have a foundation, at least at those entry level classes. Now, the other reason I do it and I will continue to do it is because my student evaluations have consistently indicated that they really appreciate the in-class demo and that they find it helpful. Now, when I do in-class demo, I typically also include an asynchronous video demo so they can go back and look at it because when you're demoing software, right, it's a lot of click this, look at this menu item, do this, blah, blah, blah. And if you forget one step in the process, you can get yourself really stuck. So an asynchronous video that accompanies the in-class real-time demo can be really helpful. So at this point, you might be wondering what the other side of the debate is, right? Because I've kind of made it sound pretty good to teach technology in class. But the other side of the debate is that there are so many different types of cameras and software editing programs and everything else technology related, that there's no way that you can teach them all. And even if I could teach them all, new technology is released all the time. So whatever you teach to students is most likely not what they're gonna use five years from now anyways. And that's absolutely true. So I learned to edit on Final Cut Pro and now I use Adobe Premiere. I learned to shoot on a Canon camcorder that recorded on mini DV tapes. <laughs> that's what I learned to shoot on in college. And now my primary camera that I choose to use is a Panasonic GH5 mirrorless camera that shoots on SD cards like most camcorders do nowadays. So do I wish that I hadn't originally been taught the Canon camcorder and Final Cut Pro since I'm no longer using that technology? No, absolutely not. Quite the opposite, in fact. Every time you learn a new software program or a new camera, your brain gets better at learning new technology in general. Once you've learned how to use a certain interface, you know what features and functionalities to look for the next time you learn a new interface. So if my class is the first time that a student is attempting to learn an editing software, then I don't just need to teach them how to use that particular editing software, but I need to teach them how to learn a new software. So I hope that that's making sense. It feels a bit meta to say, but the truth is knowing how to learn technology is a skill in and of itself. And if I can show students how to learn something new and how to problem solve, then I know that they'll be able to adapt to new technology as they continue to grow in their career. Do I need to handhold and demonstrate every single software program and every single piece of tech and every single function within that software or tech that they're ever going to use? No, but I need to guide them through the learning process so that they can feel empowered to do it on their own later when new technological advances arise. 
That's kind of my school of thought there. The panel had a combination of ideas. They didn't really answer the question definitively. They really had two people on the side of teaching tech in class and two people on the side of let that be supplementary outside of class. But I appreciated that they didn't answer definitively because I don't think there is one completely right answer. I kind of made it sound like there was because I think that there is a right answer for me uh, and my style of teaching, but there's a lot of situational context there that makes the discussion a lot more nuanced. Either way, it was really interesting to hear what other instructors' thoughts were. And also it was nice to hear that it's something that many other instructors struggle with because it is something that I have really wrestled with back and forth over the years. Now, I also wanna tell you a little bit about the session that I presented at. I was on a drone panel and it was with two other video production faculty named Julian Rodriguez and Dale Blasengame. And we presented a panel discussion about drone technology and it was titled Retracing the Future of Drones, Courses, Projects, Photogrammetry and Beyond. I really enjoyed this panel. It was awesome getting to know Julian and Dale throughout the process of putting together our presentation and then meeting them in person when we all got to Las Vegas, as we're all from different places in the country. It was so much fun getting to talk drones and learn with them. You know, I have taught one course in drone videography so far, and I just got my FAA Part 107 commercial drone license just last summer, so not even a full year ago yet while these guys have been flying for nine or 10 years. It was a great session and I was able to add the intro part of the session and then they were able to jump on to talk about some of the more advanced projects and photogrammetry and stuff that they have done with their drone courses. After it was over, you know, it was very well attended. We felt like it went well and it's something that we want to try to continue offering as the years go on. So coming up with something drone related at each conference. And I'm excited to explore that partnership going forward. Now, I've told you a ton about the educational sessions, but I haven't yet gotten into the National Association for Broadcasters Convention. Like I said, this was the part that had about 100,000 people from all across the world. There were three different halls in the convention center, and they were full of incredible exhibitors. I mean, some of the most amazing technology that I've ever seen. And I love that BEA teams up with NAB so that we can spend the first couple of days, you know, learning from and networking with other broadcast educators. But then we also get to experience everything that is NAB as well, because NAB is like the pinnacle for any audio video, anybody, right? If you're in audio video work, NAB is where you want to be. This was actually the 100th year of the NAB show. Again, typically it's attended by somewhere around 100,000 people. One of my favorite things, one of the keynote speakers this year was Brett Goldstein, who is an actor, writer, and producer. He's best known for his role as Roy Kent in Ted Lasso. So again, Kevin, my travel buddy and colleague, and I are both big Ted Lasso fans, and we both fangirled big time getting to see Brett Goldstein speak, maybe Kevin even more so than me. Brett was interviewed by Ashley Nicole Black, who is also a writer on Ted Lasso, and they both also write for the new show Shrinking, which I haven't yet seen, but I've heard amazing things about. And it should be noted that Brett plays Roy Kent in Ted Lasso, but he is also a writer on the show as well. And in fact, started out as a writer and then was cast as Roy Kent after the writing process had begun. So that was that was really, really special to get to see him. 
Now, let's kind of finish off with some of the cool tech stuff that I, that I saw on the NAB show floor. There were so, so many things to see, and a lot of it was over my head, to be honest with you. But I did get to go check out a lot of the exhibits from some of the companies that I regularly follow and companies that we have equipment with at our department. So DJI announced the Inspire 3 drone, which I was very excited to see. It shoots in 8K, so you can blend it with Blackmagic cameras, RED cameras, things like that, and it's gonna blend seamlessly. It can capture footage in 360 degrees, and it looks to be just a fantastic professional filmography drone. Now, DJI also had the new Ronin 4D out, and this thing looks amazing. We have a DJI Ronin at uh, our university, but not this, not the Ronin 4D. This simplifies and streamlines the production process because the camera and the gimbal is all built into one. So that's very different from what we've seen with the DJI Ronin in the past. This is one seamless piece of equipment. You can get incredible picture quality, insane stability, combined with a ton of flexibility to, to kind of try out different shot types because the whole contraption is, is really lightweight and handheld. So you don't have to have a large crew or a ton of add-on equipment to use the Ronin 4D, which is great and also is kind of uncommon to see this amount of functionality in a small, lightweight, handheld package. Moving on to Canon. Canon also had a few updates. They had a firmware update to their EOS R5C. Uh, so not a new camera, but a new firmware update. And that's a full frame mirrorless cinema camera. And with this new firmware update, they've officially been approved to shoot Netflix productions. So that makes eight cameras total that are in that EOS Canon lineup that are now approved to use for Netflix submissions. I also wanted to mention Small Rig. Small Rig has a new tripod out that solves a problem that we've all lived with for so long. And as soon as I saw what feature they had introduced, I immediately thought to myself, why, why has no one ever done this before? Like, why have we not had a tripod that did this? Not at least that I've ever seen. Maybe they exist somewhere else, but to me, this was like completely new. So what they did is they have a really nice heavy duty carbon fiber tripod and they added a lever to it that allows you to adjust all three legs at one time. So what that means is that gone are the days of having to have your tripod unstable for a good 15 to 20 seconds while you extend all the legs individually and then you have to get them as close to level as you can and then you have to use you know, the ball head or the fluid head to make fine-tuned adjustments. So now you can just level it once and then throughout your production or throughout your shoot, you can adjust your tripod height as often as you need super quickly without having to re-level at all. So that was amazing. I definitely want to look into these small rig tripods uh, the next time we rebuy. Now let's talk about some Adobe updates. Adobe Premiere introduced a text-based editing system, which is amazing. This is a whole different way of editing from the traditional non-linear timeline editing. And it's rivaling technology like Descript, which has become really popular in the podcast videocast world. I haven't worked with this feature in Premiere yet, but I'm really excited to try it out because it does seem to be the direction that a lot of editors are going. I have used text-based editing in the beta version of Adobe Podcast, and it's, it's really slick. 
Uh, but I can't wait to see how that text-based editing is incorporated into the entire suite of functionality of Premiere Pro. If this becomes a viable method of editing, this will completely change how I teach a lot of my classes. You know, I don't think that text-based editing will replace traditional nonlinear editing. And I think that I will always teach the traditional nonlinear way of editing, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. But I would love to teach this new text-based editing as an add-on for sure. Moving on, DaVinci Resolve released version 18.5 today, and they've enhanced a lot of tools within their software program as well. DaVinci Resolve is a big competitor with Adobe Premiere Pro. They added some refinements to the menu structure, and they also added an entirely new text manipulation section that also includes automatic transcription and edit to text. So again, you can see that this text-based video and audio editing is becoming a really big contender in the video editing world. And they've also added some additional auto reframing tools for social media videos as well. DaVinci Resolve has really taken off over the past couple of years as a really great affordable alternative to Premiere Pro. Arguably, Adobe is still the industry standard for video editing, but Resolve might be getting really close to being on par and who knows, maybe eventually overtaking Adobe in the video editing space. The big high points for Resolve are that it's not a subscription package and the basic software is completely free. So if you wanna buy the advanced one, you can, but it's a one-time payment versus Adobe Creative Cloud, which is of course a subscription package. And the basic software package that is free for DaVinci Resolve is really robust. There's a lot that you can do in it without even having to buy uh, the newer version. A lot of my students that are using Resolve right now don't pay for it at all. I do have several students using Resolve right now. I would say maybe maybe only like 5%, 5 to 10% in my classes, but I expect to only see more of that over the next couple of years. Right now, I do all of my demoing in Adobe Creative Cloud using software like Premiere Pro and Audition and After Effects, but I don't know, that might be changing. I might need to add some demos for DaVinci Resolve in there as well. Um, which of course kind of goes back to our conversation of do we teach tech in class? Because it definitely does make it harder as an instructor that you have to make sure that you are continuing to learn and grow and keep up with the different softwares that are in play because DaVinci Resolve is becoming a pretty key player in this area. That's an overview of everything that I got to experience and learn at both BEA and NAB. And like I mentioned, this was my very first time attending either of those conferences and my first time in Las Vegas. So it was a really big deal for me. I loved every second of it, and I am super hopeful to continue attending this conference in the future. Um, so again, I'd like to say thank you to my department, the Elliott School of Communication, for funding this experience. And I'll say see you next year, Las Vegas. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. It's not lost on me that this is kind of a niche episode. It may not have hit for everyone in my listenership as it's it's quite targeted, right, towards audio video people. But even if this wasn't your favorite style of episode, don't worry. We've got a lot of really interesting interviews with stellar storytellers coming up in the next couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to talk to Kyle Ellison. He is the executive director of Heroes Academy, and we're going to discuss how he's empowering young people to write their own narratives, regardless of the circumstances they've been given or what they've been told that they have to be. 
Then the week after that, I sit down with local author Matt Calhoun to talk about his book, The Knowledge of Sin. And guys, it's so good. I started reading The Knowledge of Sin on the plane ride home from Las Vegas, and then I ended up finishing the entire thing in one day because I got completely hooked on it. So we don't you know, say any spoilers in the interview with Matt. So you don't have to have read it before you listen to the podcast. But I will say, I think it would be a lot more interesting to listen if you had already read the book. That's going to be in a couple of weeks, about two weeks. So if you want to go out and get the book now so you can be prepared for when that comes out, I would highly suggest it. So thank you again for tuning in this week. This is something that I look forward to every single week. And I'm honored that you all take the time to listen to this little passion project of mine. Have a great week and I'll see you next time on Create Space.